welcome back to True Crimes Untold, Tales of a Shockingly Strange Past. I'm your host, Jess, and this episode is on the DC Mansion Murders Part 2. Now to that breaking news from D.C. Darren Wint, the man convicted of the notorious mansion murders, will spend the rest of his life behind bars. Cheryl Connor live outside of D.C. Superior Court with the sentence just handed down. Yeah, it certainly was, Adriana. I'm going to read you a quote from the daughter of Amy and Saba Savopoulos. That is a quote that will stick with me. We toured cemeteries instead of colleges. She said that to the judge before that sentence was handed down on the impact of losing her parents. Hello, hello, my beautiful friends. How are you guys? I hope you're all well, happy, and healthy. Is it just like shitting snow where you guys live? Because it's doing that here right now and it's so fucking exciting. Some of you are probably like, why would that be exciting? Because when you're a kid and you grow up with snow every winter and then you hardly see snow for years, it's exciting. And plus our dog is obsessed with the snow. She's a boxer, but she thinks she's a husky and she can just like live out there. Obviously she can't, but it's fun to see her playing in it as well. And I'm sure if you have any kids, That's also fun and exciting, you know? So anyway, if you have not listened to the first part of this episode that I put out two weeks ago, stop now, go back and listen to that one first, or you're just not going to understand any of this. Uh, This is one of the worst crimes in DC history, which the city of DC is relatively pretty safe. Um, so it was a, a huge news story for a pretty good bit of time. So this is the second part of the DC mansion murders. I'm going to give a little listener's discretion. Um, this one, we're mostly going to be talking about the suspects, but there is still things, um, involving murder, torture, involving murder of a child. So if you don't want to hear about that kind of stuff, I would definitely skip past. Darren Wint was the only suspect in the brutal slayings of Sava, Amy, and Philip Silvopoulos and the family's housekeeper, Vera Figueroa, inside of their D.C. mansion on May 14, 2015, after holding them hostage for 22 hours. So, who is Darren Dylan Wint? Darren was 34 years old and living with his dad, Dennis, and stepmom, Pam, and their teenage daughter, Darren's half-sister, in the house in Lanham, Maryland. But on that day, Wednesday, May 13, 2015, Darren's family testified during the trial that he basically went missing. Darren was a welder, and he worked for a couple different metal working places around Prince George's County, Maryland. For a short time, Darren also worked for American Ironworks, the company that Sava Savopoulos ran. He was fired for missing work in 2005, almost 10 years before committing the crime. Darren learned to weld from his stepfather in Guyana, where he grew up. In 2000, when Darren was just 19, he immigrated from Guyana. But by 2015, Darren hadn't had steady work for a few years. 
He moved into his dad's house in April 2015, and by May, he had a routine that he would do every day. He would wake up early, most days even before the sun came up, and he would leave the house in his old blue minivan to go look for work. Nearby was a 7-Eleven parking lot where day laborers would hang out around, waiting to get off the book's jobs. By 10 a.m., Darren would usually be getting back home without having found any work. Pam, Darren's stepmom, was the first member of Darren's family to testify, and she told the courtroom about Darren's daily routines. She said after Darren would get home from looking for work, he would spend all day on his phone or his computer. He would mostly be online talking to his long-distance girlfriend, Vanessa, who lived in New York. He also spent hours watching movies on Netflix. Darren's cell phone was given to him, and he didn't have a cell phone plan, so we would have to use Wi-Fi to make calls, send text messages, and to use social media apps. This partially explains why investigators had a hard time getting a digital trail on Darren Went during those two days. During the spring of 2015, Darren also would spend hours of his day at the gym, and it showed in his Facebook pictures. His profile was filled with gym selfies before his page got taken down. He's not a very tall guy, but he looked to be in great shape. Darren had another obsession, playing the lottery. A family friend had given him an old laptop, and Darren would try to calculate winning numbers and boosting his odds on picking a set of winning numbers. Before Darren moved in with his dad, he lived with his brother Stefan, but was kicked out after they had a fight. Darren thought by moving in with his dad that he would have more stability, but that wasn't the case either. In the beginning of May 2015, Dennis told Darren that he had to be out by the end of the month. Darren's green card was also getting ready to expire in May. His stepmom helped him fill out the paperwork to get it renewed. It's a very long and complex process, and Darren knew at some point that he would probably have to get a lawyer to help him with it. Pam said on that Wednesday, May 13, 2015, she woke up around 7 a.m. to get her daughter ready for school, and Darren and his blue minivan were both gone. He never came home around 10 a.m. like he usually would. He didn't come home the whole day. Pam said she stayed up late that night, waiting for him to come home, but he never did. She was worried because she couldn't reach him, and he never told anyone where he was going or that he wouldn't be coming home that night. Vanessa, Darren's girlfriend, was also starting to get concerned. She sent him multiple messages, and they all went unanswered, which wasn't like Darren. At 1.41 p.m., she texted, Baby, I haven't heard from you. I hope everything is good. Still, no response. Later that night, she sent him another message. Hey, babe, I know you said not to worry about you if I don't hear from you, but can you please call me and let me know that you're okay? I love you. I just want to hear your voice to know you're okay. Vanessa tried again early the next morning on May 14th. At 7.43 a.m., she texted, Baby, just want to know that you're okay. Darren doesn't respond. He never responds to any messages on May 13th or May 14th. During the 22 hours that the Savopolis family and Vera were held hostage, tortured, and murdered, Darren Wentz's usually very active Facebook account went silent. 
During the trial, the prosecutors showed the jury a chart that they made showing how many Facebook messages Darren typically typically sends in a day. He would normally send dozens and sometimes more than a hundred. He only really used Facebook to communicate with everyone he talked to. He went from sending nearly a hundred messages a day to not even one on those two days. Prosecutors said from 6 a.m. that 6 a.m. that Wednesday to after 6 p.m. Thursday evening, a whole 36 hours, Darren's Facebook record showed no activity. In the timestamp 6 p.m. on Thursday, that's just 30 minutes after Amy's Porsche was was found set on fire. It's at that time that Darren's Facebook activity returned to normal. He was sending many messages again, like he usually would. When Darren got back home to his house in Lanham, his dad was furious. He told Darren that they were worried about him and told him he needed to let them know if he planned to stay out all night. When Pam was on the stand, she said she remembered that Darren never said where he had been and that he had said something like he just didn't feel like coming home. I'm stressed out, Darren told his dad and Pam. I don't have a job, he said. Later that night, Darren finally responded back to Vanessa. No one knows what reason he gave to her why he didn't respond to any of her messages for nearly 36 hours. Vanessa did testify at the trial, but she never said what Darren had told her. A few hours after Darren's first response back to Vanessa, he sent her a photo. It was a picture of two white iPhones, and they were identical to Amy and Sava's missing phones. Darren asked Vanessa if she thought the phones could be traced, and she said yes, she thinks they can be. At some point that night, Darren deleted the picture of the two iPhones. So far, all investigators really had on Darren Witt was circumstantial evidence. Darren's defense attorney tried to restrain this evidence from being introduced at trial, arguing that it wasn't relevant, but the judge disagreed and there ended up being even more incriminating circumstantial evidence against Darren. The days after the murders, Darren's search history was very questionable. A little before 7 p.m. on May 14th, several hours after the fire started at the Savopolis home, Darren was searching for information on iPhones, wanting to know if an iPhone 6 has a memory card. Then just a few minutes later, he searches for information on how to master reset an iPhone 6. And again, both Amy and Salva's missing phones were iPhone 6s. At 8.08 p.m., Darren searches how to beat a lie detector. Later that night, he starts to look for news clips on his phone, specifically about the fire. At 12.33 a.m., he searched Tonight News Fire on Woodland Drive. And then right after that, he searched Channel 9 News last night house fire. And then he searched video of four people died in house fire tonight. The next morning around 9.14 a.m., Darren starts obsessively searching for news about the fire on Woodland Drive. On May 15th, the day after the fire, Darren is texting with his sister's boyfriend and his friend Derek Ayling, also known as Godfrey. Darren and Godfrey used to work out and go to the gym together when Darren lived with them. That night, they decided to go work out at Retro Fitness like they used to do. While they were at the gym, Darren pulled out a stack of cash and showed it to Godfrey. 
He told him it was $1,200 and that he finally won the lottery. After working out, Godfrey dropped Darren back off at his dad's house. About an hour later, around 11 p.m., Darren called Godfrey using Facebook Messenger, telling him he needed a favor. At first, Darren didn't want to tell Godfrey over the phone, but Godfrey insisted that he wouldn't help him unless he just told him. Darren said he needed help setting his van on fire. He told Godfrey that he'd sideswiped a car earlier that day and that he took off and police would be looking for him. During the trial, Godfrey was asked if he helped Darren burn the van. He said, no, I couldn't do that. That's a layer too deep for me. Then he said, I don't roll like that. The next morning, Pam noticed that Darren's minivan wasn't parked in the front of the house like it usually is, but Darren didn't seem concerned about it. He told his dad and Pam that he wasn't even going to call the police over his stolen van, but his van was never stolen. What was left of it was sitting at the county impound lot. Firefighters found the blue minivan in flames near an industrial park the night before, three days after the Savopolis home was lit on fire and four bodies were found inside, Darren went jumped on a bus with cash on hand and headed to New York. Darren and Vanessa are lying in bed together, winding down for the night in Vanessa's Brooklyn apartment when the local news comes on. It's been six days into the investigation of who killed four people hundreds of miles away in D.C., but the world didn't know Darren Wint's name yet. At this point, he wasn't even the suspect in the crime. The day before Darren left for New York, he went to an immigration attorney in Maryland and paid $1,100 on legal fees to get his green card renewed. This was just two days after the murders, and at this appointment, Darren agreed to give his fingerprints for an FBI background check. Once Darren got to New York, the spending didn't stop. He took Vanessa out shopping and to expensive dinners. He also bought her groceries and gave her money to pay her rent. All this money that Darren was spending, it was all in $100 bills. Darren's explanation to Vanessa on how he had all this money was that he sold his van for a few hundred dollars and he finally hit big. He won the lottery. On May 18th, the day after Darren arrived in New York, he started his searches again. He was searching for websites of local D.C. news stations. The Mansion Murders, which is what the crime was being called, was still the top story. His next search was for 10 hideout cities for fugitives. Then he searched for five countries with no U.S. extradition treaty. Just two days after all these searches, Darren's luck runs out. The TV lights up their bedroom with the story of the Woodland Drive murders and there's been a major break in the case. Police have identified a suspect. Suddenly, a few pictures of Darren's face flash across the screen. Vanessa jumps out of bed and says, Darren, that's you. Vanessa took the stand during the trial and cried softly during her testimony. They were no longer in a relationship, but but Vanessa still said she still cared what happened to him. Vanessa was testifying for the prosecution. She was given immunity for her testimony. What What could she have been charged with? After Darren and Vanessa saw his face on TV that night, they left her apartment so the police could not find them. 
They fled together to a hotel just minutes before the NYPD swarmed her apartment after the news report. The next morning, Darren told Vanessa he was going to turn himself in and took a taxi back to the D.C. area. But before he left, he gave her more money and she spent it. The night before Darren's name was released as a suspect, police raided the home of Dennis and Pam Went in Lanham, Maryland, but Darren obviously wasn't there. After talking to Darren's family, police had an idea where they could find him. They believed he was in the Brooklyn area and a task force was put together to search for him. Darren went from being an out-of-work welder to a fugitive and the most wanted man in America, and there was a nationwide manhunt for him. May 21, 2015, exactly one week since the fire on Woodland Drive and Darren had been named a suspect. Darren's brother, Darrell, had seen his picture on the news the night before. Darrell was in downtown D.C. at a painting job his other brother, Stefan, got for him when his phone rang. It was Darren. He answered it and he told Darren that he needed to come home and turn himself in. Darrell was worried for Darren. He was wanted by the police. His face was all over the news, and Darrell said he was concerned for his brother's safety, that he didn't want him to get hurt, even maybe by the police. By the end of the conversation, Darren agreed that he would come back to D.C. and turn himself in. But first, he wanted to meet up with Darrell. He needed help getting a lawyer. Darrell told Darren that when he got back into D.C. to meet him downtown by the university near near where he was painting. When they met up, they talked and set up a plan to get Darren a lawyer. They would do it before Darren turned himself in, and he told Darrell that he had already been in contact with one. But the problem was paying him. Darren told Darrell that he had a lot of cash on him, but that the lawyer wanted to be paid in money orders. They needed at least $10,000 in money orders, but they had another problem. Most places capped the amount of a money order at $1,000, so they would have to go to several places to get enough money orders. Darrell's lunch break was almost up, so he decided to get Darren a hotel room until he got done, and then when his shift ended, they planned to drive around to get the money orders filled. But there was still another problem. Darrell had lost his ID and knew he needed one to get the hotel room for Darren. So, Darrell drove with Darren to his friend Garnett's house, and the three men drove back to the hotel and used Garnett's ID to get the room. During the trial, Prosecutor Laura Bach asked Darrell if he asked Darren if anything he saw on the news was true. Darrell said no, that he didn't ask because he didn't want to know. Darrell said that after work, he went back to the Howard Johnson Hotel, and his brother gave him stacks of cash to get the money orders. Darrell knew he would have to get at least 10 di- to go to 10 different places to get them filled, and he needed help. He called a girl he was friends with, someone he could trust. Chelsea Nunez grew up near Dar- Darrell in the same neighborhood. When he called, Chelsea was hanging out with her friend, Shia, and she said she would help get the money orders too. Darrell told them all the cash was to help get a lawyer for a friend who was turning himself into police. They met up and got into Chelsea's white Chevy Cruze and went out to get as many money orders as possible. Chelsea testified later that Darrell handed them both stacks of $100 bills to get the money orders. 
It took a long time, and it was getting late. Darrell said he was starting to feel nervous. People were calling him all day long, asking him if it was true. Did his brother really murder those people? Darrell said he felt the pressure. He was in a car with piles of money orders and thousands of dollars of leftover cash. He collected it all and had the girls drop him off at his cousin's house. Darrell said he went there because he was looking for a voice of reason. George Elias, Darrell's cousin, said in his testimony that they didn't really have a hanging out relationship, but when Darrell showed up at his house the day after Darren's face was all over the news, he said he had a pretty good idea of what Darrell wanted to talk about. George wouldn't even let his cousin in the house. They talked out front and Darrell confided in George, telling him that him and Darren had a plan and that they were going to get him a lawyer first and then Darren was going to turn himself into the police. But he told George that he was getting nervous about all of it. George said he would help Darrell, but he gave him an ultimatum. If you want my help, you have to turn your brother in now, George told him. Darrell agreed. George said he would go with Jarrell to turn Darren in, but he didn't want Darren riding in the car with him. Darrell called the girls and asked them to pick him back up, and when they returned, they had another friend with them, Felicia. When they all drove back to the hotel to meet Darren, George's white box truck pulled in and following him was Chelsea's Chevy Cruze. When they got to the hotel, Darrell was going to go inside, but George stopped him and reminded him of the ultimatum. He said, If you don't come back around that corner with Darren, if you come back by yourself, I'm calling the police right here, right now. Darrell went into the room alone, and inside he handed his brother $23 in money orders and about $7,000 he still had in cash. They talked and both decided to cut out the part of the plan where they got a lawyer first and just go straight to the police. Darrell told Darren that after he turns himself in, that he will take all the money orders and go get the lawyer for his brother. Darrell said Darren agreed. Darren and Darrell left the hotel room. Darrell walked Darren to Chelsea's car and told Darren to get into the back seat, and Darrell got into the box truck with George. Felicia was in the back seat of the Chevy Cruze when Darren got in the back with her. She testified during Darren's trial that she didn't know Darren, that she'd never seen him before that night. She said inside the car, the girls were talking and carrying on like normal. They tried to include Darren in on the conversation, but he wasn't interested in small talk. She said he was sort of rude and shut her down when she tried to make conversation. He kept asking, how long and where are we going? During the ride, Darren was making phone calls but would turn the volume all the way down so no one could hear what the other person was saying. Darren testified in court that he was able to make those calls because his brother lent him a flip phone so he could call Vanessa. Darren was also using the phone to try to reach Darrell in the box truck just ahead of them, but Darrell wasn't picking up. He was making calls of his own. His first call was to their father, Dennis. Darrell said his dad gave him a phone number and he grabbed a pen and scribbled it down on a piece of paper. It was the number of Detective Jeff Owens, the lead detective on the case. He answered the phone. He gave Darrell an address, 300 Indiana Avenue Northwest. Darrell also wrote that down and wrote the word jail, underlining it three times. Darrell was turning his brother in. 
As the two vehicles made their way down Route 1 and into D.C., it was shortly before 11 p.m. when they crossed the district line where Route 1 turns into Rhode Island Avenue in northeast D.C. The two vehicles had no idea that 30 law enforcement vehicles were descending on their location. The U.S. Marshals surrounded the box truck and the Chevy Cruze on all sides. An unmarked police car cut between the car and box truck and reversed, blocking the way. Chelsea slammed on the brakes. She said she thought there was an accident. Then two more police cars rammed the sides of her Chevy Cruze. Felicia said it was like a movie. She looked down and saw a bright red laser dot on her chest. There were flashing lights everywhere and police swarmed their vehicles. The police shouted for them to get out, of, get out with their hands up and back away from the vehicle. During all the chaos, Darren just kept repeating, they're here for me. On September 11, 2018, Darren Wentz's murder trial began. Prosecutor Laura Bach and defense attorneys Jeffrey Stein and Judith Pipe started with their opening statements. Darren's public defenders argued that their client was not involved in the killings and that he was set up by his brother, Stefan Went, and by his half-brother, Darrell Went. This is the case in which nightmares are made of, made of, Judith Pipe told jurors, but Darren Went is not the monster who brought the, about this nightmare. One month into the trial, after hearing from many witnesses and after the medical examiner had just finished her testimony detailing the gruesome injuries and the prosecution rested their case, it was announced on national television that Darren Wint would be taking the stand in his own trial. He wanted to tell jurors in his own words how his brother set him up to take the blame for the murders. Darren told the court that on Monday, May 11, 2015, two days before the Savopolis family and Vera were taken hostage, he took a drive to Tacoma Park to visit his half-brother, Darrell. Darren said when he was at Darrell's that Darrell offered him a job. According to Darren, Darrell said that he and his other brother, Stefan, were doing a painting and drywall job on that Wednesday and they would pay Darren if he helped. Darren needed the cash, so he took the job. The plan was to meet early that Wednesday morning near where Stefan worked, a construction shop called PCM Services. On May 13th, Darren said he woke up early and drove to the construction shop to wait for his brothers. He said when he got there, Darrell walked up to his van and told him there was a change of plans. They didn't need Darren's help anymore, but they needed his van, and they would pay him $300 to borrow it for the day. Darren said he was disappointed that he wouldn't be working, but gave Darrell the keys to the van. First, Darren said Darrell drove him to a house in Silver Spring, Maryland. Darren testifies that he didn't know this house and that Darrell went inside for a few minutes and then came back out. Darren said he told Darrell to drop him off at Ed's house. Ed was a friend of Darren's that would work on his van, and Ed's house was known as a hangout spot, so that's why he decided to go there. <clears throat> this is the reason Darren gives jurors why his Facebook activity went silent for those two days. When Darrell dropped Darren off at Ed's, he pulled away before Darren was able to grab his cell phone out of the van. Darren said he was basically stuck at Ed's house, that he had no way of contacting his brothers. 
and he wasn't expecting Darrell to be back to pick him up until 5 or 6 that night. But he said 5 o'clock came, then 6 o'clock, and Darrell never showed. At some point that evening, Ed offered Darren a drink, and Ed was smoking some marijuana. Darren did take the drink, which he thought was vodka, and the next thing he knew, he was feeling sick, so he laid down on the couch and passed out at Ed's house. He said he woke up around 1 a.m. and fell back asleep. The next time he woke up, it was after 10 a.m. Darren said he got up, walked outside, and a blue convertible Porsche pulled up and Darrell was behind the wheel. Darren said they pulled away in the Porsche and he assumed Darrell was taking him to his van, but Darrell told him they still had some work to finish up and they needed Darren's help. Darren said he was hungover, not feeling good, and needed to eat something, but his brother would not stop for food. He told Darren that there would be food where they were going, which was at Woodland Drive. When they got to Woodland Drive, Darren said Darrell parked in front of the house, they both walked right in the front door. Once inside, Darren said he turned to the left and walked into a fancy sitting room. He waited there while his brother Darrell went upstairs. When he came back down, Darrell was carrying a box of Domino's pizza. Darren said he ate a slice of the cold pepperoni pizza, all except for the crust because it was cold and hard, and he left it in the box. As Darren testifies, he admits that yes, he was in the house on Woodland Drive and he did take a bite of that pizza crust. Darren said he didn't hear anything out of the ordinary, no screams for help or scraping of chairs across the floors. He said he didn't have the feeling that anyone else was in the house, nothing out of the ordinary at all, except for one thing. When Darrell handed him the pizza, he was wearing those thick construction gloves. Darren said it struck him as odd, and he was kind of annoyed about it. Like, why are you touching my food with your dirty gloves? Darren said as he was sitting there, he realized he left his phone in the Porsche, so he went back out to get it. Before he stepped outside, his brother told him on his way back in to come back through the garage. Darren said he went to the Porsche to get his phone and his black drawstring backpack that he also left in the car, and when he walked around to the side of the house to the garage, he said the two automatic garage doors were closed, but as as soon as he approached the one on the right side, it opened for him, and he slipped under the door. Darren testified that was around noon on Thursday, May 14th. Which was, which was the exact time the two men that worked at the residence of the Australian ambassador across the street saw a man that matched Darren's description ducking under the garage door. A key piece of evidence linking Darren Wint to the crime was found in the garage, a construction helmet that was found lying on the floor with a single strand of broken hair inside of it that matched Darren Wint. But Darren had an explanation for that too. Darren said Darrell met him inside the garage with that construction helmet and a lime green construction vest and told him to put it on. That's when Darren said Darrell, who also put on a construction vest, said they would be unloading the house. Darrell didn't want them to stick out. Darren said he knew what unloading meant, stealing. He said he told Darrell that he didn't want any part of that and he just wanted Darrell to take him back to his van. Darrell refused and said he still needed his help. Darren said he got so upset that he pulled that hard hat off his head and he threw it on the floor of the garage and stormed out of the house and just kept walking. 
He turned down the first side street he got to and looked for a bus stop or a metro stop, just looking for any way to get home. Darren said he was so angry that he didn't even realize he was still wearing the construction vest. Suddenly, Darren said that blue Porsche pulled up and Darrell was behind the wheel again. He told Darren to get in, that he would take him to his van, but first they had to make a stop in Maryland. Darren's version of events puts the Porsche on New York Avenue heading into Maryland around the time the eyewitnesses saw it. Darren said Darrell drove to a parking lot near Prince George's County, which is just steps away from the apartment complex that Darren lived with his sister for years. And Darren's other brother, Stefan, also lived nearby. When they got to that parking lot, Darren said Darrell changed his mind again and told him that he couldn't take him to his van. But Darren said his brother handed him the $300 for borrowing his van, and he also gave him two white iPhones. Darren said he was just frustrated that his brother wouldn't take him to his van, and he didn't know how he was going to get there. He was so frustrated, he said that when he was getting out of the Porsche, he pulled off that lime green construction vest and threw it at his brother, who was still sitting in the driver's seat. Then Darrell drove off, and Darren realized within seconds that he didn't have the keys to his van. He paid a tow truck driver $100 out of the $300 he got from Darrell. The tow truck driver testified to this and that Darren used his cell phone to text and call multiple people, one of them being Darrell. Darren said he was texting Darrell so he would come back and give him his keys, but he got no answer, so the tow truck driver towed Darren's van back to Prince George's County. The reason it was towed to a parking lot instead of Darren's house was because Darren said Darrell told him he would be back in that area later, so Darren figured he would just wait for Darrell there and get his keys, but but it didn't happen like that. When Darren was waiting with his van, he searched the van for a cigarette. He popped open the glove box, and there were his keys. He had the van towed for nothing. Darren got into his van and drove back to his dad's house. Later that evening, after Darren got home, he and his dad had that argument about where he had been on the 13th and 14th. He said he happened to catch a glimpse of the news and saw that there was a fire in D.C., and it was at 3201 Woodland Drive, the same house where Darren said his brother had taken him for a drywall job, which he found out really wasn't a drywall job, and the same house where he ate that slice of pizza. Darren said he was shocked, so he pulled out his phone and searched how to beat a lie detector. While Darren was being questioned by his lawyer, Judith Pipe, she asked him things like, if you were just in a fight with your brother because he wanted you to steal from a house, then why would you take the two iPhones Darrell was trying to give you? Darren told his lawyer that Darrell told him those phones didn't come from the house. He found the two phones in a park, and Darren said he believed him. Darren told his lawyer that later that night, after he learned that the house he was in earlier that day caught on fire and that four people died, he met back up with Darrell and they went to Walmart. They made two trips to Walmart that night, one shortly before 10.30 and then the other trip about an hour later at 11.30. Darren said during those Walmart trips, he was asking his brother about the fire, but Darrell wouldn't tell him anything. Darren said he was worried that his blue minivan would be linked to the fire, which is why Darren said he looked up how to beat a liar detector test. 
Then Darren said Darrell gave him a lot more money for borrowing his van. He gave him $6,000. The conversation with Godfrey got brought up about how Darren asked him to help burn his van. Darren told his lawyers that yes, he did call Godfrey that night and asked him for help. He was worried that Darrell did what Darrell did could be traced back to him by his van. But Darren said he didn't do it. He fell asleep that night with his van parked right outside his dad's house. Darren said when he woke up the next morning, the van had disappeared. He thought that Darrell had already taken care of it. His minivan was found on a found on fire in an industrial area of Prince George's County. It was found shortly after midnight on May 16, 2015, the same night Darren asked Godfrey to help him burn it. Now it was prosecutor Laura Box turned to cross-examine Darren Went. Darren stuck to his story when he was being questioned by the prosecutor. Laura asked Darren about the time he worked for American Ironworks, Sava's company. She asked him if he was terminated in 2005 for missing work. Darren's response, yes, ma'am. Everyone who knew Laura Bach and who worked with her knew she was a shark in the courtroom. She wouldn't accept half responses from the defendant, and she pushed hard. She wanted to paint a picture for jurors that Darren Wint was an out-of-work welder for a few years who lived between family members and needed help with money from his mom and sister who still lived in Guyana. Laura begins her questions when it comes to Darren's story. She picks apart everything that he said happened in those few days. She doesn't believe him when he said that he was upset that he didn't get to work for the money he got from his brother, Darrell. She asks him things like, it doesn't strike you as odd that your brothers could rent a U-Haul for $50, but they want to use your old minivan for $300. Darren's response, no, ma'am. Laura, <clears throat> excuse me. Laura moves on to the part of the story when Darren gets to Ed's house. She asks him how long he has known Ed and how old Ed was back in 2015, but Darren doesn't have the exact answers to those questions. Laura asks Darren if he knew Ed was a cocaine addict. Darren responds with, yes, he does drugs, but he didn't know all the drugs Ed used. Then she asks, asks if he knew that Ed was a sex offender. Darren said no, that he didn't know anything about that. Darren said he never got into Ed's background, that he would go there so Ed could work on his van. Laura asks Darren if he knew that investigators had questioned his whole family about his whereabouts on May 13th and 14th, and not one of them could give him an alibi. He said yes, he did know that. The point that Laura Bach was making is that Ed could be the only witness to corroborate that part of Darren's story. Laura's next question for Darren was, just to be clear, you know Ed's dead, right? No, ma'am, Darren responded. The only man that could clear Darren's name died a year earlier in 2017. Darren told lawyer he, Laura he wouldn't have any idea he could... Sorry, let me say that again. Darren told Laura he wouldn't have any idea because he couldn't call Ed while he was sitting in jail. Laura Bach reminded the jury that if they are looking for the answers for every single question in this case, they won't find them.
She told them that even if they believed Darren Wint could not have committed these crimes by himself, they could still find him guilty of murder if they conclude he participated. <clears throat> Laura continues to question Darren about the timeline of his story. She accuses him of taking notes and writing out the timeline as he listened to all the evidence they had against him before he took the stand. Judy Pipe, Darren's lawyer, asked the judge if she could clarify to the jury that Darren had every right to hear the evidence against him. Laura agreed that he did have the right, but she wanted to point out to the jury that because of that, it gave him the ability to build his story around that evidence. Laura moves on to when Darren and Darrell got back to the house on Woodland Drive. She asks him about how he didn't hear anything in the house at all, no screams for help, and no furniture being moved. Laura then asks him if he heard any dogs. Darren tells her, yes, he did hear them barking while he was sitting at the table, and he said they were barking the whole time. She asked Darren why he didn't mention that yesterday when he was asked if he heard any noise at all. It seems like Darren started to crack a little with his story, like maybe he couldn't tell anymore what the truth was and what was a lie. Laura Bach is trying to get Darren to trip up and reveal holes in his story, and it's working. She wants the jury to see that it doesn't make sense. Darren is saying that his brothers just asked him to rob a house that he didn't want to, but he continues to get into the car with Darrell, take money from Darrell, and even go on a Walmart trip with him after seeing on the news that the same house was lit on fire and four people were murdered inside. Darren Wint spent a day on the witness stand being grilled by Laura Bach. As she was coming to the end of her cross-examination, she tried to get Darren to confess to the crimes. She asked him, Just like you had your hair in that room with those three dead people in that location, right? Your hair in the bed next to the bat you used to kill Amy and Sava Savopoulos, isn't that right? No, ma'am, he responded back to her. And that was Laura's final question for Darren Went. Judy Pipe got a chance to ask her client a few more questions. She started with questions about the witness testimony and if Darren ever looked at transcripts of their testimonies. It was confusing to Darren, so she asked him straight out. Are you trying to craft your testimony to match what witnesses have said in the trial, Mr. Wint? No, ma'am, he responded. He told her he's just telling it the way he remembers it. Judy finishes her questioning with, Did you ever overpower anyone in May of 2015? Darren's response, No, ma'am. Did you overpower Sava Savopoulos? No, ma'am. Did you overpower Amy Savopoulos? No, ma'am. Philip Savopoulos, no ma'am. Vera Figueroa, no ma'am. Did you ever see them when you were inside the house at 3201 Woodland Drive? No ma'am. Did you have anything to do with what happened to those people? No ma'am. And that was Judy Pipe's last question. After two days on the witness stand, Darren Wint stepped down and took a seat next to his attorney's. Over the course of the six-week trial, over 70 witnesses gave their testimony. Now it was time for Judy Pipe and Laura Bach to give their closing arguments and speak directly to the 12 jurors that will decide the defendant's fate. Judy Pipe told them that Darren didn't take anyone hostage or murder anyone. Darren Wint sits here as an innocent man. 
She said the government's case consists of strategic selected pieces of the puzzle purposefully designed to mislead you into believing that Darren committed these crimes. And every time there was a piece of evidence that didn't make sense in this case, the government dismissed it. First, she told the jurors to question how three adults and a child could be held and restrained for nearly a day by one person. She said they couldn't, and that's because there was more than one assailant. And the fact that there was more than one person involved in this kidnapping was reason to doubt that Darren did it. She asked for Darren Wint to be acquitted of the crime. It was Laura Bach's turn. First, let's talk about Stefan and Darrell's alibis for those two days. The government showed the jury's the government showed the jury Stefan's work records. They show that he was working on May 13th and 14th of 2015. And for Darrell's alibi, his memory was for those days was a little fuzzy. But cell phone records show that his phone pinged off towers in Montgomery County, Maryland on May 13th and 14th, which was far away from the Woodland Drive home. Laura Bach started her closing statements with, Four completely innocent people who did nothing wrong were savagely beaten and stabbed, asphyxiated and burned. And for what? Because of that man's greed for $40,000. Laura tried to prove that there was holes in the story because Darren Wint wasn't telling the whole story. He tried to piece together his version with the witness testimony and it just didn't make sense. It wasn't Stefan Wint or Darrell Wint who disappeared for two days without their cell phones and without any witnesses. And there was proof of that. Laura closed with this. Even though they gave him everything he wanted, all $40,000, there was nothing they could do to save their little boy. It's finally time for you to all hold the defendant accountable. It's time for you to hold Darren Wint, not anyone else, accountable for what he did. It's time to hold Darren Wint accountable for torturing, for turning 3201 Woodland Drive into a graveyard. After the closing arguments, 12 jurors, 6 men and 6 women, filed into the deliberation room. They had weeks of, close, of testimony to go over and consider. Two and a half days later, on a Thursday afternoon, the jury had reached a verdict. The victim's families were all there waiting. The judge walked in and took her seat, and then the 12 jurors came in. The jury foreman stood up and delivered the verdict, guilty on all 20 counts. When Darren heard the first guilty verdict on first-degree burglary, he dropped his head. Then the four counts of kidnapping, guilty. Extortion, guilty. First-degree felony murder, guilty. First-degree premeditated murder, guilty. The jurors agreed that on each of the murder charges that the killings met the threshold for enhanced penalties. They were especially heinous, cruel, and atrocious. Darren Wint was led out of the courtroom. At Darren's sentencing, he was now wearing an orange jumpsuit. Judge Joliet McKenna told Darren that what he put the victims through was incomprehensible suffering. She denied Darren any opportunity for release or rehabilitation. She said, it's only just that the sentence reflects the four lives taken. 
she sentenced Darren to four consecutive life terms plus 50 years. The 50 years was the combination of time for for the additional charges. 32 years for kidnapping, 8 years for first-degree burglary, 5.5 years for arson, 2 years for extortion, and 2 years for first-degree theft. There would be no time for good behavior, no parole. This sentence meant that Darren Wint would die behind bars. After the sentencing, Darren would be moved from the D.C. jail where he had lived for the past three years. Darren was moved to four different federal penitentiaries. This could be a sign that Darren is having a hard time adjusting to life in prison. And of course, since then, he has made a few appeals, but they've all been denied. Like, no, fucker, the judge told you you ain't getting out. So just stop. That's, that's your home now, okay? That's where you belong. So thank you guys for listening to part two. Um, this is a crazy fucking case. And actually, there is seriously still just so much more detail. Um, I got a lot of my research and information from a podcast that I listened to um, and just some things that they also wrote out. It's called American, um, American, I think, Crime 22 Hours, something like that, but definitely 22 hours. So, and it was really good. And they, they give you just like all the court transcripts, like word by word. So if you're interested in more, you should definitely go check that out. Um, until I see you guys in two weeks. Well, not see. I wish I could see you guys, but until I'm back in two weeks, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at True Crimes Untold Podcast and go on Spotify, hit the subscribe button, and you'll get notifications for new episodes. And I will see you guys next time. Bye.